Welcome to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential, and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guests today are Brian Rosenstiel, a cybersecurity architect for public sector at Cisco, Rob Hankinson, the acting director of the Office of Information Technology Infrastructure at the Department of State, Rob Birchmeyer, the Identity, Credential, and Access Management Lead at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA, Jordan Burris, the Chief of Staff in the Office of the Federal CIO in the Office of Management and Budget, and Sam Youssef, the Deputy Director of the Defense Manpower Data Center in the Defense Department. Gentlemen, welcome to the discussion. Let me set just a little bit of context for our discussion. Few would argue that the pandemic was the killer app for identity management and the move towards zero trust. With upwards of 85% or more of federal employees working remotely, the threat surface expanded, making identity and access management much more critical for agencies as they met their missions. Over the course of the last 12 months, agencies have figured out how to issue smart identity cards using drive credentials. GSA and the Postal Service are entering into a second 90-day phase of a pilot to offer employees an alternative to going to an office or a credentialing facility to obtain new or updated identity cards. With the success over the last 12 months, agencies now need the policy that underpins these successes to catch up. NIST is moving in that direction with an update to FIPS 201-3. OMB updated its ICAM policy in 2019, emphasizing the need for each agency to have a single ICAM policy and connect it to architectures, policies, and standards. Now, all of these efforts are helping to unlock the potential of new and emerging approaches to authenticate users. And this also opens the door further to more advanced implementations of zero trust architectures and for agencies to take a more risk-based approach to cybersecurity. So how can agencies move toward a seamless and frictionless experience for employees and citizens while also moving away from static policies and frameworks? Well, that's what our panelists are gonna help us understand. Once again, my guests are Brian Rosenstiel, a cybersecurity architect for the public sector at Cisco, Rob Hankinson, the acting director of the Office of Information Technology Infrastructure at the Department of State, Rob Birchmeyer, the Identity Credential and Access Management Lead at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA, Jordan Burris, the Chief of Staff for the Office of the Federal CIO in the Office of Management and Budget, and Sam Youssef, the Deputy Director of the Defense Manpower Data Center in the Defense Department. Gentlemen, let me maybe turn to Sam Youssef from the Defense Manpower Data Center to start. DOD has been a leader with identity and access management. You all were, you, you put the identity and identity management probably back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and really you've been building on it. Walk me through the current approach to identity and access management at DOD and how has it evolved specifically over the last year? Yeah, uh, thanks for that comment, Jason. We, we certainly feel like we've always been at the tip of the spear when it comes to identity management and our work on uh, the smart card and uh, common access card. Uh, at Defense Manpower Data Center, we uh, operate the uh, personal data repository for all of DOD. And in that we uh, have over 50 million identities that we manage for the department. Uh, and with that, uh, we enable our common access card program, which we manage and our uh, uniform services identification card program, which is also out of the Defense Manpower Data Center. Uh, and with those two credentialing programs combined, we're talking about over 11 million cards in circulation uh, that we use to enable access to our networks, military installations, and equally as important uh, benefits and entitlements for our service members and their families. Uh, and, and I mentioned that really because uh, the identity strategy at DOD has always focused on that tip of the spear uh, war fighting mentality. Uh, and then on the other side of the fence, you know, taking care of our veterans and our retirees, ensuring they can get uh, access uh, at the right time uh, seamlessly, but also, as we know in ICANN, ensuring that it's uh, not access in perpetuity, right? It's, it's access leading to that zero trust framework and, and making the right authorization decisions. And, and we also know too well in the Department of Defense, you know, when we don't have the identity framework uh, to support those access, uh, we're putting our installations at risk and our people at risk. You brought up a couple of key words that I'm sure we'll get back to during our conversation today, zero trust framework, identity underpinning that. 
have you seen an evolution over the past you know 12 months with identity and access management at DOD because of the pandemic or just because it was time to, to evolve? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a, a common synergy there, right? We're, we had the snowball rolling and then the pandemic hit and it, it helped uh, kick, kick us into further action. And a, a couple of those things are, are, have been highlighted too in uh, DOD's data strategy, right? Getting to a, a data-centric environment and, and really the, the ICAM is, is kind of the underpinnings of that as we can uh, get more mature with our backend infrastructure and making our attributes available across the enterprise, uh, we, we single-handedly can uh, make those authorization decisions uh, much more seamlessly. So I, I'm very excited actually with the momentum we have in the department. Uh, this has been something uh, that's been championed at the Deputy Secretary of Defense level uh, when we talked about ICANN in the previous administration, and we're seeing that momentum just carry uh, in this administration. And, and with that, you know, again, it, it goes back to greater focus on uh, the capabilities that we're able to provide. And, and there's a, a couple of things that um, I'll, I'll get into more later, but as we focus on uh, providing digital identities and digital ID cards, so we don't have to bring in uh, our 7 million uh, beneficiary veteran population into ID card centers, right? Which is also important uh, during this time period. And the ability to uh, remotely uh, renew cards and have them pre-positioned. So these are all areas we're getting a lot of energy behind uh, that has been kind of catapulted by the last 12 months. Let me turn to Rob Birchmeyer from NASA. NASA, I remember years ago, Rob, when I was covering the early times of HSPD-12, NASA was always ahead of a lot of other agencies. Walk me through your identity and access management strategy today and, and how's it evolved? So, I mean, very similar to what uh, Sam was saying. We, we had uh, been looking at ways to do remote enrollments and, and things that, you know, because of the pandemic have become pretty much essential. It's hard to get people to come into a NASA center when we're on lockdown. And it's, you know, we've been able to maintain that over past year, but we have been looking for the past several years and worked with GSA, like you mentioned, uh, they're doing their pilot with the post office now. Um, we've met with some other companies uh, in the last six months who actually work with TSA and have infrastructure at all the airports as a potential way to, to get that uh, initial enrollment in for uh, the PIV badges that, that we want to issue. So um, this, is a, this is a problem we've been trying to solve for the past, I think, probably three, four years, because um, we've had instances where Folks are in Colorado and can't get to a NASA center because we're not in every state like the post office or, or airports are. So that has our, been our main focus. And we're trying to come up with uh, yeah, new and innovative ways to actually be able to get those enrollments done. We did change our uh, renewal process so that, you know, the finalization of the badge, which is a technically uh, is typically done in person where you come in and you uh, put your fingerprints in and, and enter your pin and all that to finalize the badge. We did come up with a way uh, to do that remotely for the users when for just reissuance. So uh, they do it using a team session and all that so that they can, you know, the actual user finalizes the badge and the badging official doesn't know the, the PIN number, but then we mail it to them and then they can continue to use it. So we, we did some, some things to enable those, but there is that big problem space of the remote enrollment and the getting the I-9 docs and all those things that we're hoping uh, the update to the uh, FIPS documents will assist in that. It's uh, interesting that you all uh, are moving down this path very similar to, to where GSA and the Postal Service, that pilot, which is just in that DC metro area. But I know from talking to them, they're looking at, okay, what can we learn from this pilot and where and how quickly can we expand it? In the meantime, you know, have employees new to NASA or needed, needed to re-up their badge? What have they been doing? Mostly it's been you mentioned the online piece for a reissuance, but what about new employees? What, what have they done over the pandemic? Yeah, new employees, we still require them to come in because of the MS requirement. We can't, we can't get around that. So um, we, uh, the badging uh, offices at the different centers, I think we've got like you know, 12 or 13 of them around the, the country. Uh, they set up a schedule, you know, people come in and they're very, uh, it, I think it's evolved 
over the past several months as far as, you know, the, it, it was very hard to get them to come in, people to come in. But I think people become more comfortable with, you know, with policies of wearing masks and washing your hands and stuff to where they're, they're more comfortable doing it. So um, we, we still require them to actually do the in-person for the, for the initial visit. So Rob, we'll talk more later about the kind of how the identity management piece fits into applications and, and make sure the mission side and security. But let me turn to Jordan from OMB. Jordan, you can look at this from a very much broader level. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about the identity management policy at OMB, but but what are you seeing across the government? What are some of those trends about identity and access management that you would highlight that really have popped up, that really have really become more prominent over the last year? Uh, thanks, Jason. And first, thanks for having me. From OMB's perspective, you know, one thing that we're seeing is really just a continued push to accelerate efforts um, for establishing and maturing identity capabilities. You know, when we put out the, the memo in 1917, our intent was to reframe how we approached identity management, right? Taking a look at all lever or all layers of that, not only the governance aspect, but also architecture and how we were designed, confirming that we had appropriate roles and responsibilities defined for pushing this forward. And that we were really looking at this in terms of not only what we're doing for the enterprise, what we're doing for the public. I can tell you that from you know, our engagement with uh, the agencies and you know, looking across the board, we see that it, over the last year, there has just been that continued push. Much of this started you know, uh, four years ago, right? When, as we were going through the process of updating the memo across agencies, but I think, you know, things like the pandemic just further emphasized the need uh, for digital identity. And then more importantly, I think it's, it's now culturally becoming understood that it is the underpinning or the foundational element for how we deliver services, especially in a digital environment. Uh, and so, you know, we're excited to see the progress and look forward to continue working with the agencies uh, as they go forward. I think, I think you make a great point when you talk about the, the underpinning and foundational element for delivering services. So much of that has come into play over the last 12 months. Do you get a sense that agencies, the acceleration we hear a lot about VPNs and move to the cloud and, and the application you know, modernization and all that that happened during the pandemic, was identity also another piece that was accelerated? Meaning we know about the digital signatures. That's a great story, right? What, what, what have we been waiting for, right, Jordan, for the last 25 years to do digital signatures? Oh, a pandemic. But that's that's one great example of the acceleration. Are you seeing other areas? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we talk about, you know, the, they were, you know, Rob and Sam were both talking about operating in a remote environment. One thing that we have been seeing is more pushes towards uh, accelerating progress or making it easier for the public to engage in digital services. And, and so uh, one thing we, you know, coming out of the Social Security Administration, right, there's a number of efforts that they're doing to help make it easier for, you know, their users in order to get accounts and be able to access things that otherwise they would have to go in person to do, right? A number of agencies, you know, you talked about GSA and the Postal Service, one of the things we recognized, especially as the government was flipping to maximum telework, was that we needed to make sure that we were reducing exposure and risk to, to the public and the employees and contractors that work in the government. So there has been kind of this, this whole community effort in order to make sure that, you know, we're using digital identity practices to the fullest extent possible to make it easier to do the work that we have to do at the end of the day, right? New credentials are being issued, services are being stood up, we're reframing how we might approach collaboration tools uh, and making sure that we're doing more to, you know, leverage identity really as that core enabler for driving our, our missions forward. I, uh, I think those are great examples and we'll have to follow up with SSA if we can uh, get them to uh, talk to us a little bit. Uh, let me move over to Rob from the State Department. Now, Rob, you guys at the State Department have a different perspective, uh, very similar to DOD with people all over the world, but sometimes you, you're dealing with parts of the world that has necessarily great network connections. Identity is gonna play a bigger role because of other threats. Walk me through how the State Department's identity and access management strategy has evolved over the last year or so? So the, the strategy really hasn't evolved over the last year at all. It's been compressed and accelerated quite a bit as, as others have mentioned. Uh, we started down a, a enterprise access management solution about three or four years ago. Uh, we started with a tiger team of, of all of our regional and functional bureaus from across the Department of State. 
Uh, and if you know anything about the Department of State, all of our IT services don't rest under one house. We have a bunch of individual bureaus that kind of have their own little silos. And we've been working for years to collapse and consolidate those, uh, but we just weren't there yet. So we had bureaus with individual needs and requirements and varying degrees of their own access management solutions, their own identity providers. Uh, so when we started through this effort about three years ago, we brought them in and we talked about what their needs were and what where they saw their, their uh, where their systems were going and, and where they were going to need to be in the future. So we went through, I believe it was uh, 10 different products uh, through, through this Tiger team, evaluated. We had the companies come in, talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, and we settled on a, uh, our, our solution back at that time. It was a very uh, versatile solution. Uh, and it was the right solution for the Department of State. Fast forward to the beginning of COVID, we, we implemented that solution. We were, we were slowly rolling people on. Um, we don't have a strong uh, telework culture at the Department of State. We, we come into the office and we do our job and we leave, you know, we've got consular affairs issuing passports. And these are sort of things you've got to do in person. Uh, very, very few uh, could actually do the job outside. On any given day, we, we would have you know 2,000 people teleworking, and that would be about it. And that's not a lot after with 120 some thousand users globally around the world. So, the COVID has really changed our culture significantly over the last year. Uh, quickly ramping up to uh, expand remote telework services uh, has, has really changed our culture. Uh, we we are, are now bringing on more and more applications where before it was kind of a slow roll. We slowly kind of brought people in and, and converted over the individual bureaus applications as they saw fit, as attrition helped. Um, but when COVID hit, they, we, didn't, we, didn't, we weren't capable of doing that anymore. We, we couldn't take our time anymore. We, we really, there was an explosion of bringing uh, the different applications and the users on into this this one instance that uh, has, has now just grown and grown and, and we look forward to building off of that. Uh, we, we've had huge pilots uh, for stepping into zero trust uh, environments. We haven't gone to, we haven't piloted a complete zero trust solution yet, but we've got different pilots going on that test different capabilities with that. Uh, and we really look forward to the day that we can, we can leverage zero trust technology completely and I believe Sam said that identity is the uh, underpinning for zero trust. Uh, so we're, we're getting there. And this, this provided us that push that we needed uh, to get to that zero trust infrastructure. And we could talk a little bit more later about our plans and, and how that's going to be an absolute game changer for the Department of State and saving costs and, and improving security. Rob, I have plenty more questions for you, but let me jump over to Brian real quick to get him in this segment here. Brian's been very patient. Brian, let's react to what you've heard from, from the panel so far. Uh, there seems to be some common themes. No, absolutely. You know, and, and these themes are what I've heard throughout, not just, you know, with our speakers here today, but uh, through everyone that I've talked to throughout the federal government. You know, identity didn't change with COVID. In fact, it, it never really has changed going back to the earliest days of identity management. I think what changed was our understanding of what identity actually meant. The, the you know, Jordan said it best when he talked about digital identity. When we were, you know, really embraced and understood digital identity was beyond just the person behind the keyboard. It was everything involved within that authentication request. And we took a lot of that for granted, uh, you know, before COVID, you know, as, as Rob was saying, People went to work, they went into the office. There was a lot of perimeter security, you know, that, that existed that we could use to, to establish that initial trust and, and just allow that authentication to proceed. When we moved to a telework environment, um, that changed the game. We suddenly had to start saying, okay, well, what, what device are they using to authenticate with and, and, and what authenticator are they using and where does that authenticator reside? And let's think about, what kind of flexibility we're going to need, even within our identity proofing, but also within the credentials we allow to access our, our uh, networks and resources and applications. And that expanded our view and understanding of identity in general. 
So yeah, absolutely. These common themes have been, I think, central to the, the what I would say, overwhelmingly successful response to a significant change that I think people thought may happen, but certainly no one thought would happen to the extent it did and, and for the duration it has. All right, plenty to follow up with you as well, but let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential, and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network. Modernize your security with strong authentication from Duo. Security and IT modernization don't have to be complicated. In fact, Duo Security eliminates a lot of complexity to ensure only trusted users and secure devices have access to your agency's critical applications and data. Duo offers two FedRAMP-authorized FIPS-compliant editions of our cloud-based authentication and device visibility that ensure your organization meets strict security and compliance requirements. It's modern authentication for the modern workforce. Try Duo free at Duo.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Brian Rosensteel, a cybersecurity architect for public sector at Cisco. Rob Hankinson, the acting director of the Office of Information Technology Infrastructure at the Department of State. Rob Birchmeyer, the identity credential and access management lead at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA. Jordan Burris, the chief of staff in the office of the federal CIO in the Office of Management and Budget, and Sam Youssef, the Deputy Director of the, of the Defense Manpower Data Center in the Defense Department. Jordan, I'm gonna come back to you because we've talked a lot about the progress agencies have made. We've talked a lot about how there's this recognition of the importance of identity management, especially as agencies move towards zero trust. Where do you see this evolving over the next year, two, three years from now around identity access management? And if you wanna dig deep into NIST 201-3, feel free. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, I can I can start off with you know to your point on progress, right? The progress that we have seen. I think we've seen a lot in terms of how agencies are delivering their mission. We've seen a lot in what they're doing for the users. At the end of the day, I think one area that we're looking to continue to see progress and where we'll be working with agencies closely and is what they're doing in terms of managing identity for we're going to say non-person entities, automated tools, technology, robotic process automation, those types of things. And the reason being is because very much they're synonymous with the activity that we see on the network is very similar to that that we would see of a user at the end of the day. And I think it's one thing we called out in uh, 1917 was the need to be able to manage identities and credentials around those entities. I think one thing we also did within 1917 without necessarily calling it zero trust was talk about shifting the operating model beyond the perimeter, right? And for us, that really means about starting to look at, you know, how we're managing access to data, how we're managing in it a way where we don't look at uh, agency networks or environment as the traditional, you know, castle and moat. And instead, we're, we're looking at it for more of, you know, an operational construct where it can kind of be anywhere. And we're really verifying all interactions or access points uh, that, you know, connect to an agency's data at the end of the day. I think for us, when we're looking at uh, the standards piece, uh, since, since you mentioned it, uh, we, we did make a call out in 1917 for NIST going through the process of updating uh, you know, their standards and guidance. And what really we were intending to do with that really was take, take the standpoint of like, hey, we're, we're reframing the foundational elements. We understand that agencies need the standards to also move and evolve. We put inside the memo opportunities for continuous updates, such things as adapting uh, the government's approach to HSPD-12 and doing that in an iterative manner. With FIPS-201, uh, which had recently gone through public comment, one of the things we were intending to do is push for more identity federation between agencies, such that it was easier to engage in what we would say a collaborative digital environment versus having to go on site in order to have a meeting or access resources uh, from one agency. We also wanted to set a, a stronger framework, if you will, uh, for how we could eventually uh, shift and mature the types of credentials that we use. And you know, Sam talked about being able to do, you know, the, the traditional CAT card or things like that in more of a, a digital manner or have credentials available in more of a digital manner. We were intending that. We were intending that uh, NIST 800-157, which talks about derived credentials, would be updated to go beyond just where it is today with PKI-based technology, but then also look towards where we could be using other types of technology and really managing around identity as a premise and not necessarily the PIV card. 
Um, the, the two are very much interlinked, but I think for us, we're trying to get agencies back to, you know, identity is core. And then we have, you know, the credentials and access, uh, other credentials that we have uh, to help them enable uh, the work that they need to do. And I'd, I'd love to jump in there because Jordan, I think that's a, a perfect segue to a comment that was made, you know, some years ago by uh, the CIO that the common access card was going away. And it, it really just, you know, shook everyone across the department and certainly my agency, which issues the common access card. But I, I will say that premise was the right aspirational premise. It, it's that, you know, what we're doing is focusing on the identity and the attributes and making the data available in a real-time fashion to make the authorization decisions that we need to make. You know, the, the CAC is really just a, a bifactor of, you know, that process that needs to exist. And, and it's absolutely the right premise that we start looking and leaning toward those concepts of no longer needing a credential, right? Aspirationally, I, I think this is where you're forward leaning with your guidance at an OMB and at the agency level, absolutely uh, where, where we want to head and need to head. Will the, the CAC ever go away? No, probably not, right? But the manner in which we need it will absolutely evolve uh, over the years. So if I could just add a, a little bit to that, and I, I'd love to hear that we're transitioning and pivoting off of that, that solid firm factor uh, card that's, that's being used everywhere. The Department of State, we, we've got doctors overseas, we've got sensors, we've got Internet of Things coming, we've got so many technology devices, and Jordan mentioned NPE, that we've got to be able to identify these and to make sure that they can be trusted. And not all of them can take a PKI-based credential loaded onto it. So having the flexibility to use other factors and multiple other factors and different attributes of that system to make a single decision and uh, whether or not a device or a person or a, uh, a anything at all should be accessing the network and, and what privilege they they have is going to be huge. Uh, so many so many days uh, so many times today we we have to find ways around uh, or, or competing with. Uh, technology and our needs uh, in balancing the, them across policy as well. Uh, I think the new FIPS coming out and uh, the, the, the new uh, documents coming out of NIST are going to be key policy drivers that enable this for us. We look forward to implementing YubiKeys and things like that going forward. And, and those non-PKI-based credentials, uh, those are going to be huge. They're going to be helpful for our travel teams. They're going to be helpful for our doctors. They're going to be helpful for interagency support as, as we have our tenant agencies uh, at our 270 locations around the world. Uh, we're really looking forward to the changes that are coming there. Yeah, yeah same thing at NASA. I mean, we uh, rolled our own PIBI equivalent uh, type of card several years ago to support those individuals who don't qualify for a PIV or can't, you know, can't receive a PIV due to the, you know, the six month restrictions and so on. So the, the ability to have additional credentials available via policy uh, is gonna be really tremendous for us. The, the thing we're struggling with right now is getting technology up to the level to be able to issue those, you know, because there, there's a lot of upgrades we've got to go through because um, NASA is a little bit different than some of the other agencies, certainly not different than DOD, but the other uh, other agencies in the government, we're a go to own. Uh, on our own PIV issuance, we don't use the GSA all access card. We, we actually issue our own, so uh, we have to maintain all that infrastructure. And we're we're getting those upgrades in place. We've already got them lined up uh, to take place, so we can get those when policies are finalized. We can actually start issuing those additional credentials that will allow us to you know meet the need of the customers and the missions better. Rob, real quick, just let me jump in. Um, when you say other, you're struggling for the technology to catch up. Is that just an internal thing to NASA, meaning you're trying to marry new technology with old, I'll use quotes here, systems, or is it something else? No, so like our, our infrastructure that we do the issuance out of, like when, when we show our badges, we've got a couple of key upgrades that we're, we've got in the pipeline right now to be able to issue YubiKeys, for example. Uh, the current version we're at for our CMS doesn't do that, but that's, you know, we've got it in our pipeline ready to go. And we're working to get those uh, to that level to be able to issue it. Uh, the, as far as supporting it from a technology on the, on the application end, that's something that we'll have to work through, obviously, as well, because some of those uh, applications won't necessarily support that type of authentication. 
Brian, give yeah. me a sense for Brian, jump in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, everything that I hear, I always tell a story when people ask me, where's uh, identity going, where's authentication going? Um, and I always say, well, to understand where it's going, we need to understand where it's been. In the last 10 years, we're about building the strongest enterprise grade authenticator we could. And we, you know, had strong identity binding of that authenticator to an individual. I think we've done that. I think there's, you know, when you look at how fast technology is moving, and you look at how long physical smart cards have, you know, been the, the predominant authenticator in use in the federal government, that's a testament to how successful we've been about creating that authenticator. For the next 10 years are going to be about smarter, stronger, and more flexible authentication. You know, as we've seen mobile devices becoming more secure, as we've seen the cryptographic uh, chips and elements embedded on those devices gaining increasing security and sophistication, you know, beginning to rival that of physical smart cards, as we've seen the needs of, of mission and the networks uh, diversifying. You know, Jordan talked about moving beyond the perimeter. You know, in many ways, I ask people, well, where is your perimeter today? Can you even define it? How do you define it? And we realize a central concept in all of this is, well, through the lens of authentication, we can see you know, a commonality of where users are flowing, where data is flowing. Then we can kind of get a sense of what that perimeter is. And we may understand, as, as others have said, we need to have more flexibility in the authenticators that we're leveraging as a part of that authentication workflow. That authentication workflow is going to be more than just presenting of one type of, of factor or authenticator in that authentication. So yeah, that, that's exactly what we are seeing. Um, the other part about this too that uh, was mentioned was about understanding that we need to centralize the way that we, we handle some of our, our ICANN, some of that management. And that again is decoupling away just from a single authenticator and looking at it broad scope authentication. You know, uh, Rob from, from State talked earlier, and, and this is true across you know, most of the federal government that I, I've worked with is you know, the, the fragmentation of even the credentials themselves and how they're issued and how they're managed and, and the IT infrastructure. We know that's going to need to change to be able to consolidate, especially when we look forward to, to zero trust. You know, zero trust is going to have us having you know, policy enforcement points and these different attributes. We're gonna to need to have some sort of centralization and identity is gonna be at the core of that. And so we're gonna to need to, to rethink the way that we've gone around some of our issuance and some of our management in these systems in order to be able to embrace that and move forward with that type of, uh, of best practice in architecture. I wanna go back to something that Jordan said because I, I think this is fascinating. It's zero trust, we'll get down that path in a second, but the other piece of it is the non human, the, the, the RPAs, right? The bots who are doing work. And I think that's another big piece of this. And, and uh, Jordan, I came across a playbook put out by GSA and, it, and I had to read through it twice because I was like, oh, this is identity management playbook. Oh no, it's a non-person entity identity management playbook. And I, I just thought that that was a, a fascinating um, description of how that works. Is that something, um, I know DOD, NASA, anyone, are you all starting to kind of, I know NASA, for instance, has been a leader with RPA and bots. Is that playing into kind of how you're looking at the the way identity management is going to change and continue to change? Yeah. So, so at NASA that, you know, we've been working with coming up with that, that digital identity for an NPE device or, or a bot uh, looks like. So we have recently uh, deployed the capability um, and, you know, you have to, take all the, the OMB <clears throat> mandates and kind of marry them into a, you know, how, how do you have an identity when you actually have to have a proxy identity for it? Somebody has to own that identity that isn't the identity doing the work. So we there's a lot of interpretation of all those policies and how do we get them into um, the right uh, IAL and AAL? So, you know, we still want to get an AAL3, but, you know, how do you do that? So we, we've implemented an HSN, HSN solution that some of the applications that actually manage the bots or do the bot work, scheduling and so on, can support, but some can't. So there's, um, I think I think Rob uh, had said it earlier about how you know we, we struggle with what the policy requirements are, how would we get the mission done, and how do we kind of marry those together and we have to make compromises from time to time and, and put in compensating controls to be able to accomplish that. So 
going forward, I mean, it would be it would be nice in a perfect world if we could have all those policies just line up and all the technology was there and everything just worked the way the policy says. But fact of the matter is it doesn't. And, and we, we worked in the RPA playbook. I think I participated in some of those discussions. Um, and it, you know, it, it was very helpful to see the other agencies going through the same situation we were and coming to a lot of the same conclusions that we did as far as how we handled those. I love what you said, Rob. Sometimes we wish the policy would marry up with the technology, which would marry up with, with the way things are done and then things would be easy. So uh, yes. uh, appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the perfect we point. always look at that the policy sets the bar and that we expect that industry will try to catch up to the bar. And there always seem to be lagging in doing that. And that's no hit on industry, right? That's just the fact. That's how life is. We have to wait for those things to come out so then the industry can try to figure out how do we accommodate that. And that's been a common refrain around cybersecurity, around a lot of technology. So, so you're absolutely right. Let's jump to a break and then we'll come back. We can continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential, and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network. Modernize your security with strong authentication from Duo. Security and IT modernization don't have to be complicated. In fact, Duo Security eliminates a lot of complexity to ensure only trusted users and secure devices have access to your agency's critical applications and data. Duo offers two FedRAMP-authorized FIPS-compliant editions of our cloud-based authentication and device visibility that ensure your organization meets strict security and compliance requirements. It's modern authentication for the modern workforce. Try Duo free at Duo.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, the future of identity, credential, and access management in government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Brian Rosenstiel, a cybersecurity architect for public sector at Cisco, Rob Hankinson, the acting director of the Office of Information Technology Infrastructure for the State Department, Rob Birchmeyer, the identity, credential, and access management lead at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA, Jordan Burris, the chief of staff in the Office of the Federal CIO in the Office of Management and Budget, and Sam Youssef, the Deputy Director of the Defense Manpower Data Center in the Defense Department. During the discussion, we've heard several times about zero trust. It's come up a bunch of times. Let me turn to Rob from the State Department. You said you had a couple pilots that are ongoing around zero trust. Where does identity management and, and access control kind of fit in with that zero trust pilots? So first, you, you have to have strong identity to, to do anything with zero trust, being that it's, it's very centric around the identity of the person and protection of the data, moving that castle and moat infrastructure back towards those deeper layers uh, is, is an absolute game changer. It's a, it's a huge cost savings as well, especially for the Department of State. Uh, we talked about a couple of different policies coming out. Uh, one of my favorite ones that we haven't mentioned yet is the, the TIC 3.0 policy. The Department of State, we, we spend a ton of money uh, back channeling all of our traffic that needs to go to the internet, to the cloud, back from our 270 embassies to the United States to go through a domestic tick. Uh, Zero Trust is gonna help us with that in that we can, uh, well, well, today we, we purchase laptops, we, we put VPNs on them, we, we have them collected in a central location, uh, central people build those and then, and then we pay for them again to be shipped out uh, so the cost of the laptop is, is probably the smallest piece of the whole project. Uh, with Zero Trust and uh, TIC 3.0, we're going to be able to deploy a new uh, drop ship method that the user can actually purchase the laptop wherever they want. And using the identity that they already have built, be able to kick off a autopilot sort of feature that then downloads all the security and wraps it around. The two solutions that, that we're testing is one is the, the Cisco uh, solution. Uh, the Cisco teams pulled it together and they've done an amazing job. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's gonna work very well for us. Uh, there's, there's some upgrades that have gotta be done and, and they're all over it uh, to, to get us to that next level. Uh, but when that's said and done, we'll be able to use that strong identity to uh, really uh, bring forward our users into the new era and not have to deal with the bandwidth issues of somebody sitting in, in Caracas and having to, to try to get to the cloud back through the United States. They can, they can leverage O365 with, at, at the, the directest point possible. Uh, they, they can get to all of their, their needs, uh, YouTube videos or whatever they need directly without having to come back. Uh, a lot of our locations are over satellite. Bandwidth is just an issue. 
uh, and piping everything, our, all of our networks over one single pipe is, is complicated and hard. So moving that, turning our infrastructure into more of a transport is huge. We can leverage all of our different various uh, capabilities of getting people to the, the destination, satellite links, ISPs, uh, at least lines, uh, even, even in some case HF. Um, so uh, there's, there's a, a lot of different paths our users can take and sometimes have to take looking at the, the state of the world right now and seeing what's going on specifically today in different parts of the world. Having versatility is huge and I think zero trust is going to get us there. Brian from Brian uh, Rob from State mentioned kind of the the solution that they're testing out. Walk me through a little bit more about what you're seeing more broadly about the agencies who are like, please bring Tick three more quickly. Help us get to zero trust through these types of of technologies. Yeah, you know it, it's it's all a part of that transformation that we've been talking about, right? At, at the core of all of it is kind of understanding zero trust seeks to bring in. Uh, dynamic practices, right? So we've talked a lot about authentication. At the core of authentication, when we look at authenticators, they're, they're inherently static. It's not anything you know derogatory or anything against the authenticators. It's just what they are. It's proof of possession of something, right? Whether it be a, a memorized secret, and that's what a password is, proof of possession that I can remember that password. Um, or we take a look at a smart card, incredibly strong authenticator, right? It's proof of possession of uh, memorized secret pin, proof of possession of that private key, which resides on that smart card, it doesn't tell us anything else going on during that authentication event. That's what Tick 3.0 seeks to, to kind of address in, in some ways when we want to build up uh, a trust for, for a user as they go into a trust zone. Um, actually, we see the same thing within CDM, uh, talking about you know understanding who's on the network. We're seeing this outside the, the federal government slightly with CMMC and trying to get better uh, data and, and handle on users and devices authenticating. This is a central theme. All revolves around this idea within zero trust of being very dynamic, being very flexible and adaptive. And that's what you know we've been working with a lot of uh, agencies and departments on. Now, now granted, there's multiple facets of zero trust, right? Within Cisco, we talk about the three W's, we talk about workplace, we talk about workloads, and we talk about workforce and workforce being the, the identity and authentication piece. But it's all about having some type of policy, some type of policy engine, some type of policy enforcement in line within these various pieces that we can change or that can change automatically in, in some cases with some type of uh, AI to react to uh, new and emerging um, threats or, or, or different scenarios all of a sudden we need to, to enact. And I'll pick on Cisco because you know we try to embrace zero trust as much as we can uh, internally and not just advocate it externally. Um, so we, we look back, you know, last month, Apple releases the announcement of, hey, 14.3, that, that iOS version and everything older, you need to get off of it because there was a, a vulnerability allowing for arbitrary code execution. So with Cisco, we've got uh, about 120,000 users, you know, give or take. That, that extends out to partners and contractors, several thousand applications, about 400,000 endpoints. You can ask yourself how long it would take to ensure that you, one, know every iOS device that's out there, and two, that every iOS device has been updated. And traditionally, we've, you know, you had to say, well, they have to be managed devices. We have to push down the payload to make sure those, uh, those devices get updated. Zero trust changes that. So it's in a way, wait, wait, all of this is going to flow through in, in the case of, of uh, your workforce through that authentication event. Let's just update that dynamic policy engine to say no version of iOS 14.3 uh, or, or older can be used to authenticate in. And that's what we were able to enact. And we were able to do that same day during that announcement from Apple. The decision was made, all right, let's update that policy. The, the things have changed. And uh, from, from that point going in, edit that global policy. And at that point, even those devices hadn't been updated, our authentication had, and we, we know that we were able to close the door on that. That's the kind of speed of security that we're working with. That's what we're seeing from those zero trust initiatives. Key to all this too is it's, it's a mindset. It's not necessarily a product that you're gonna go out and install a thousand units of, and all of a sudden you're, you're zero trusted. It's, you know, okay, how do we do this based upon what you have? It's not a rip and replace. It's an enhancement of existing architecture. And, and how do we do this in the most meaningful way to get you to that speed of security as, as quickly as possible? 
Yeah, and I would just love to um, touch on a, a couple of things that we heard um, from Rob at State and Rob at NASA. I think Brian just touched on it a bit too. Uh, one of the pieces to zero trust that's probably less popular to talk about is the IT modernization piece on the back end and making sure we can make our you know, legacy systems be as agile uh, to getting to the zero trust framework is needed, right? And, and at the Department of Defense, you know, much as Rob described at NASA, uh, we we have uh, a, a challenge with getting uh, real time information at the speed of relevance that that we require to really enable that zero trust framework. And I say that to say that we're we're still really really good at it, but to get to that kind of 100% uh, level of agility that we're looking for, it requires uh, us to focus on the front end of the identity management from that initial establishment of the identity and how we can get those uh, attributes downstream uh, as, as quickly as possible. And, and, and really, I think what we're seeing is, you know, there's, there's not a, a one size fits all type of answer here, and especially at the in the department where we operate uh, a lot of classified programs, we have a lot of foreign partners uh, that uh, are attempting to access that data and some of them is, which should be accessing that data, ensuring we have the identity uh, correctly, uh, uh, correctly established and distributed on the front end is, is critical. Sam, you, you bring up a really interesting point that that back end because Everyone talks about, oh, we got to move to zero trust. We need to have zero trust. But if you're working on an older system that, that maybe can't handle the more modernized identity solutions, uh, let's let's put Brian on the spot there. Brian, what's what's the answer to that? If, if, if Sam has a co-command co that, that's working on client server or, or mainframe, what do they do? We're going to put Brian on the spot. Yeah, um, that's it's a real challenge. And, and all right, we, we should stop there, right? It's a real right? no, okay. no, no. Um, Walk me through it, it. Part of it is understanding. You know, you're only going to be able to go as far as what uh, your limitations provide. Now, we do know that we can bring in multi-factor authentication into mainframes. We, we've done it, and we know that that type of authenticator that we're going to leverage may not be the the existing authenticators that that we've relied upon just because of of dependencies. That's the start. Right. When we when we talk about zero trust, we talk about authentication, we talk about, well, at least get some type of identity assurance, some type of binding to a stronger credential. Um, some of this we, we can leverage. OK, certain types of network devices can be a little bit challenged. That's where we might bring in something like a Cisco ICE to to take away the responsibility from that endpoint of doing uh, those various checks that we, we talk about and see if we can offload that somewhere else that can then be kind of that gatekeeper of whether or not access is, is going to be granted, whether or not that particular uh, application or, or mainframe or something that is going to be able to be reached. Um, but that's also the reason why this isn't just something that everyone can say, okay, I read this, these are the individual elements I need to purchase, and here's where I install them. It, it really has to come down to an evaluation of what applications and services and what is their capabilities. And from that understanding, then you can go ahead and, and, and try to figure out the best ways to bring in what, what we're talking about. And I think that's what's, I think that's what we've been doing collectively, not just um, industry, but, but especially within the federal government to understand that in order to get to even the starting point, we have to centralize uh, our understanding of our environments. We need to not have these silos. We need to understand that we're all working together. And, you know, everyone has that, that central mission, but, but the IT framework has to get centralized. Maybe not where everything runs under one shop, but at least so that we, we know what is uh, available and their capabilities. So we know how best to address that moving forward. Yeah, that, not easy, but, but something that is doable. Let me bring Jordan here because we're, we're we're pushing up against the end of this the the, the show today. But Jordan, um, walk me through some of the, the the thought process that you're hearing maybe from the CIO Council's perspective because there's a lot to address here. We hear about IT modernization, we hear about the need for some better cybersecurity, and then zero trust on that kind of rides on top of it. 
So I, I would say that largely I agree with everything that's been stated uh, it, here today. I think, you know, from, from the council's standpoint, uh, we, we rec uh, there is a recognition of the, the challenge that remains, right, for trying to move agencies in that direction. So um, you know, Sylvia Burns is part of the council. Uh, she's actually spearheading an effort where we're looking at how do we make it easier or um, help lay down kind of the ground rules for how you would go towards a zero trust like adoption or like the council is partnering with NIST and in order to stand up a, a test environment uh, and basically test bed set of types of capabilities much aligned to NIST 800-207, uh, which is a publication that was worked. Uh, and, and in particular for that one, that was around zero trust and how we could potentially adopt it and augment the capabilities that we have today, TIC, identity and ICAM, um, how we could use CDM as part of you know, getting every, all agencies towards it, recognizing everyone's going to have their own different path of maturity. And I think for, for us, um, and one thing we recognize out of OMB is that, you know, coupling not just with the policy, we also have to have, you know, these things put in place to help accelerate implementation. Um, and then, of course, you know, finer point, I would be remiss if I didn't say it, uh, is that, you know, investment in uh, technology is, is very much critical. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one thing we're, we're constantly doing is working with agencies uh, to make sure that they're prioritizing their investments uh, for the, the key capability areas that are going to be needed to help drive us forward. All right. Uh, I'm looking forward to that work from the Seattle Council NIST, but uh, we, that's something we will have to talk about another time because unfortunately we are out of time for today. This has been a fascinating conversation. So let me thank my guests. Brian Rosenstiel is a cybersecurity architect for public sector at Cisco. Rob Hankinson is the acting director of the Office of Information Technology Infrastructure at the Department of State. Rob Birchmeyer is the Identity Credential Access Management Lead at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA. Jordan Burris is the Chief of Staff in the Office of the Federal CIO in the Office of Management Budget. And Sam Youssef is the Deputy Director of the Defense Manpower Data Center in the Defense Department. Gentlemen, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential, and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network. I've been, I've been your host, Jason Miller. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Duo Security. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, The Future of Identity, Credential, and Access Management in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on Federal News Network.